0: Murphy Law in Skip 7043 The Montauk Falcon, Part 2. Previously on the Montauk Falcon, Murphy Law, hard boiled private eye, was hired by O513 to look into the mysterious death of O57, shot in the Mojave Desert. Murphy follows O57's trail to a Foundation front company learning that 057 had previously dropped off a body bag here, labeled for Site-19, but somebody else had checked it out. He doesn't find the body bag at Site-19, but does find a doctor that informs him that the bag likely contained an anomaly. He also learns from the pataphysics department that someone with the name Norridge Bali broke in ten months ago and used the department's narrative jumper to travel up a narrative layer. He then broke in again, yesterday, effortlessly breaking through the keypad lock. As for the anomaly in the bag, it turns out to have supposedly been SCP-231-7, one of the girls connected to the Children of the Scarlet King, except that Murphy soon learns from a former site director that the O5 Council was actually using Procedure 110 Montauk as a ruse to collect Foundation funds for personal use. Now he's on his way to a bar that some of the O5's frequent fists clenched and gun at the ready to get some answers. Let's continue. Fade in. Exterior. Montauk Falcon. Sunset. Murphy walks up to the front of the Montauk Falcon, his car parked at the side of the road behind him. The front of the building is washed in pink, purple, and blue light, from the neon signs posted on its front. The name of the bar illuminates the road, a massive buzzing sign covering most of the upper area. He notices a limo parked in front and approaches the driver window. A familiar red-headed man in a driver's cap and purple jacket sits in the driver's seat, twiddling his thumbs. This is Driver, and we've already met him before. Murphy taps on the window. Who? Oh, Murphy.
1: How are you? Hello, Fred. I don't suppose you drove the O5s here.
0: This is why you're the detective and I'm not. They're in the VIP room, I think. Thanks, Fred. I appreciate it. Murphy stands from the car window and grabs the handle to the front door.
1: The Foundation always had the upper hand. I wasn't sure if I had a hand at all. Ace high doesn't get you very far. Now I'm here, just before the gates of hell, with the only person at my side being Lady Luck, and she was a cruel mistress.
0: Murphy pushes open the door. Here we go. Murphy's greeted by a smoky, oaken interior. The building has a warm, inviting atmosphere about it. The bar itself is placed along the left wall a bartender serving drinks to a couple of men who are watching a football game behind the bartender. Spread out across the room is a litter of tables and chairs, some with patrons at them, all situated to face the stage at the other end of the room. Atop it, a jazz band plays a rendition of Frank Sinatra's Luck Be A Lady Tonight. Various streams of cigarette smoke float up to the ceiling from a number of different people inside, including patrons, the bartender, and the pianist. By the stage, a fire exit door sits with a glowing exit sign. A large window at the other side of the room sits above the stage, with two people conversing on a couch. They're both dressed fancy-like, sipping martinis. Murphy recognizes one of them and deduces the identity of the other. 055, and 056. A man in a suit at the front offers to take Murphy's coat, and Murphy tries to shrug him off. He insists, and Murphy begrudgingly obliges. Murphy surveys the room for a moment before noticing an orange and yellow neon sign in the back over a small doorway reading V.I.P. in blinking letters. He strolls through the room to the door pushes it open, and steps up a small flight of stairs into a small purple corridor. The hall is lined with members of an MTF squad. Murphy stops and eyes them each individually. At the end of the hall, just past a storage closet, is a closed door, a small plastic sign on the front also reading VIP. Murphy walks towards it. As he passes by the first MTF member, the member steps behind him, following him to the door. Murphy turns and looks back at him. I, What? As Murphy passes the next agent, that agent also steps behind him, then the next one. What are
1: they doing?
0: Murphy passes the storage closet, which emanates a low hum. Finally, with five MTF members behind him, Murphy looks over his shoulder and turns the doorknob to the VIP room. This all feels off. Murphy opens the door and closes it behind him. The MTF don't follow him in, but the humming from the storage closet does. Five stands to greet Murphy, accompanied by a larger, balding man. He speaks with a vaguely southern accent, as if he couldn't decide if he was born in Wisconsin or Kentucky. There's a charm to it that betrays his underwhelming figure, as if he could talk his way out of anything anything but Murphy Law. This is Six, and if we told you any more about him, it—uh. Hello, Murphy. Take a seat, won't you? Six drags an uncomfortable wooden chair over from the corner of the room and sets it behind Murphy. What? How did you know I'd be here? You see, Mr. Lawden, there's very little we don't know. I'm sure you understand that much. A little birdie warned us you'd be here. He told us you'd catch on to our little trust fund as soon as 7 hit the dirt. So we whipped up a little something to keep you from getting any farther. Those pataphysics folks, they can make you anything if they set their mind to it. The Mark 7 reality anchor is a prime example. That humming, it's the sound of
1: progress. I- I don't, I don't understand. What about the tapes in August? The files? That proves everything.
0: Murphy looks on at them, bewildered. His face turns pale and his stomach begins to churn. Oh yes, the information is real. Have you ever drank a mango-flavored margarita out of a hollowed-up pineapple? I still don't know how that place in the Bahamas pulled that
1: off was that the trip back in July? I don't think I tried one." "'Please. What is happening to me?'
0: Five turns to Murphy with a condescending smile. "'You see, Mr. Lawden, the end of August recording, the part about meeting here, that was the only part that wasn't real.' Murphy sits upright, jaw open slightly. You don't honestly believe that we'd meet at the same place at the same time every night, do you? Do you know what kind of safety risk that would be? You have to split them up and scatter them about, different places and different times, otherwise someone might actually get us. The setting begins to fade away into a nightclub, the mahogany wood giving way to dark blue walls, the tables disappearing in favor of a crowd of people jumping up and down to loud music, and the stage band becoming a DJ at a raised booth. Now, you're stuck here, with that reality anchor in the closet slowly pulling you apart, because you take everything you're given at face value. For someone who's always on edge, looking for liars, you sure are bad at catching them. What? what it-what is- who-who am I? Where am I? SCP-3143's body language and tone shift drastically, indicating a switch to its original pataphysical person. "'You're Murphy Lawden. We're here to help with what's troubling you. We just need you to stay calm. Can you tell us how you feel?' "'I… no. No, I'm not Murphy Lawden.' You wrote It Always Rains, the story featuring hard-boiled ace detective Murphy Law, didn't you? I'm just the guy you call when everything that could go wrong did? No, that's... That was someone else. I didn't write that. That wasn't me. Well, SCP-3143, you've exhibited the same properties that Murphy Lauden has. It would reason, therefore, that you must be Mr. Lauden, unless something's changed. I... He wrote the others. Lauden, that's not even his name. He wrote for murder, and the foundation always rings twice. This- this one. 056 turns to 055. Ah, that's what pataphysics refers to 3043 and 3143 as in their notes. Must be an in-house thing. How- how- how have you commandeered my story? Well, our mutual friend, the little birdie. He had some tips for us. He set us up with this vacation package in the first place. It's a brilliant plan. And he led us towards capturing you. Th- <sighs> this this can't happen. This can't go this way. This isn't how this meeting is supposed to happen. This can't go wrong. It can't. Please, Mr. Lawden, settle down. You're in for a long stay with us. I'm not Mr. Fucking Lawden. I have to do this. I- I have to win this. I have to. And why is that? Cause it's all I've got. I rip the magnum off my hip and shoot six through his stupid fucking skull. This is all wrong. Oh shit. And you too, you fucking asshole. Eat a fucking bullet. Then those guards outside run in here. But they're not supposed to be here, so they fuck off, and that goddamn humming stops. Out in the dancing crowd, I see that smug asshole looking up here with a pair of binoculars, that birdie they were talking about. Fuck that. I shoot the glass window open and jump out, rolling onto the floor below. I spot him in the crowd as he drops the binoculars and runs. You aren't getting away that easy, I yell, running after him. No, no, that's not how the formatting works. This is all fucked up. This is fucked up so bad, oh god. I run into the crowd after him. The crowd begins screaming and running for the exits. But the crowd isn't supposed to be here, this this is an atmospheric bar. The crowd disappears, and the tables return. The DJ booth fades away and returns to a band on stage, still playing as the couple of smoking patrons scramble for the door. The saxophone player looks up at the VIP room window and drops the brass instrument midway through Dean Martin's You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You, sprinting for the door. The song ends in a cacophony of crashing instruments as the band runs off the stage. A man in a dark leather jacket and a single gloved hand shoves his way through the small running crowd and out the side exit. I run through the exit, but he disappears into the night. I pull the door back open. Fuck. Fuck. Okay. Okay, alright. Get back in character. Search the room. Stop saying fuck so much. I—no. Murphy stops and takes a couple deep breaths. He sits down on the ground, shaking. There's a couple spatters of blood across his white satin shirt. THE BODIES OF FIVE AND SIX STILL SIT COLLAPSED AGAINST THE
1: SHATTERED WINDOW FRAME. SOMETHING HAD HAPPENED HERE. SOMETHING WENT WRONG IN THAT MEETING, BUT— MURPHY OPENS THE CYLINDER
0: OF HIS MAGNUM, THREE EMPTY SHELLS GREETING HIM. HE CLOSES IT AGAIN.
1: THAT ANSWER'S THAT. BUT THAT MAN, WITH THE BINOCULARS. THOSE TWO DIDN'T SHOOT O-FIVE-SEVEN. SO WHO DID—?
0: Murphy stands to his feet, uneasy. He takes stock of the room, noting every overturned table and chair. In the middle of the tables, he notices a couple of items on the ground. A pair of binoculars and a black cotton glove. Murphy kneels down and picks up the binoculars and turns them over in his hand, then picks up the gloves. He turns them over too, then opens them and checks the seam inside. A small tag sticks out with the words, M-C-N-D, display only, written on them in black marker.
1: I could only think of one person who could check on this for me, but it was a hunch. If I was going to find this birdie, I'd have to be real lucky. Birdie. Birdie. Why do I keep going back to that?
0: Police sirens blare outside the building, getting closer. They come to a stop outside the front door. A pair of officers throw the front doors open, guns drawn. Freeze! Nobody move! Murphy is the only remaining occupant in the room. He stands again and begins slowly walking backwards towards the emergency exit. The officers surveil the messy, distraught building before looking up and noticing the two dead bodies of five and six still laying against the shattered window frame of the VIP room. They look back at Murphy, gun in his hand and blood on his shirt, and finally the situation clicks to each of them. Murphy turns and sprints out the emergency door. Officer 2 moves to chase after him, but Officer 1 puts his hand on his chest. Save your energy. We'll find him. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior. Site 19. Night. Murphy burns rubber down the desert pavement, smoke and dust kicking up behind his car. The motor sounds as angry as Murphy, tearing up the road under it.
1: Those sons of bitches that put the cops on my back for good. They set me up. That was the only way any of this made sense. It's only a matter of time before the cops catch up with me. And by then the Foundation would have MTF units swarming me like bees. I was going to have to get in and out of 19 before they caught wind of what had happened. I needed more than my 44 to pull this off. I needed luck. I'm a wanted man now. It was only a matter of time.
0: The car screeches to a halt outside of Site 19's perimeter gate. Security 1 pokes his head out of the security booth. Facial recognition failed. Name and... Murphy shoots him a glare that cuts through his eyes and pierces his soul. My apologies, Mr. Law. Security One presses a button on the control panel and the gate lifts. Murphy revs the car's engine and blasts on the road. The car pulls into the parking lot as people pour out of the building's doors, leaving work for the night. People in lab coats and various colored uniform shirts all flow out of the exit. Murphy gets out of his car and starts pushing through the crowd. Where is she? Where is she? Murphy keeps pushing through people before finally grabbing a woman in a lab coat by the shoulder. She turns to him, flustered, then settles down after recognizing his face. Oh, Jesus, it's you. Look, I'm off work. If you need something from the department, you should come back tomorrow, or… Murphy pulls the black cotton glove from his pocket and holds it up to her. Dr. Patra stands back, distraught. She then narrows her eyes at it. Cut to... Interior, Site 19, Investigation Department, Night. Dr. Patra begins talking while shuffling through papers at her desk, searching for something in the wreckage of her workstation. That logo on the tag would mean it came from Marshall Carter and Dark, the company that sells anomalous items. Ten months ago, someone knocked over one of their delivery trucks, and that truck was full." Dr. Patra lifts a photo, the truck laying in the dirt on the side of a country road, out of the pile of things on her desk. She flips it over, the back side of the photo showing a shot of the truck's interior, where crates of black cotton gloves had been turned over and dumped onto the ground, likely from the truck flipping over. Of those gloves… Why, gloves? According to MC&D's own paperwork, they let you manipulate probability. Make your own luck, essentially. You could change the outcome of anything
1: from coin flips to- Could you change the probability of guessing a passcode correctly? I mean, I guess so. What about the chances a lever malfunctions and activates without you touching it? What? What about the chances someone else drags a body bag to multiple locations without raising suspicion, only for you to pick it up, kill them, and get away with it? What are you saying? What is this about? Could it be done?
0: Yes, I guess it could. I didn't even think that was the important part. But well, what is? This! Dr. Patrick pulls a sheet of paper from the pile of things on her desk and slams it on top. It's a photocopy of a sheet of crumpled, worn, and torn-lined notebook paper. Murphy grabs it up off the desk. The perpetrator left this at the scene. We've picked up notes from them before, but never anything solid, just evidence of minor interference here and there and some scuffles with anomalies. Murphy's eyes zip down the page, rolling over the scrawled writing, hunting for a name. They suffer from an anomaly that causes a lost sense of person, not just to themselves, but the world as a whole. Like, they're always just a face in the crowd, no matter what they do. Must feel pretty empty. Murphy's eyes finally find the signature at the bottom of the page. Nobody 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 a pseudonym we think only description we've ever had is he's middle-aged vaguely european might even be multiple people
1: nobody why have i heard that name before
0: well it's a word so
1: no it's the person who broke into the metaphysics department that was Norwich Bali. Murphy takes a pencil
0: off of Doctor Patras' desk and slaps the note down, scribbling the name down on it.
1: The man who signed August's retirement, that was a man named Noah D. I. What are you getting at? In the ledger, O57 checked at Sasha's. There was a Nolan body. No, Bali. Noah D, nobody, 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 nobody. I I don't understand. Give me your phone. Call Sasha's.
0: Dr. Patra hands Murphy the receiver to the phone on her desk. She dials a few numbers and the phone begins to ring. Jimmy picks up the other line. Sasha's cleaning products, your mess is our success. What can I do you for? Your order ledger. Nolan body. Who is he? I'm sorry, sir, I'm not at liberty to divulge cust Does the black moon howl? One second, sir. A few seconds pass as Jimmy pulls open a drawer and removes the ledger, then flips through it. Nolan Boddy came in yesterday to purchase a few packages of disinfectant and magic eraser sponges. Did he say anything about who he is or
1: what they're for?
0: Uh, yeah. He said he worked as a janitor at the Aria. You know, the big hotel on the Vegas Strip. Murphy hangs up the phone and runs out the door. Dr. Patrick runs up to the department door and yells at him down the hall. Where are you going? What did I miss? Murphy sprints down the hall and skids to a stop just before the main exit. The exit is blocked off by the entire MTF unit. One member stands in front of them. M.T.F. Shy 1. She has a booming voice that carries and commands the rest of the unit, and an iron will to match. Murphy Law. For the murders of 055, 6, and 7, you're coming with us. Submit now or face lethal force. Murphy takes off further down the hall, not taking the time to process the words. The M.T.F. come around the corner and take aim but before anyone can open fire, Murphy throws open the door to a room labeled cafeteria and sprints inside. Murphy leaps over chairs and slides over desks as MTF Shy pours in the door.
1: To let them take me now, dead or alive, would be a shame. I still have a case to solve, and by God was I going to solve it. I just needed a prayer, a little luck, and an
0: out. Murphy dives over the cafeteria hot bar and into the kitchen as a spatter of bullets fly by around him. He runs through the kitchen, past lines of stoves and countertops, while the gunfire behind him knocks over all sorts of cookware. At the back, Murphy finds a single thick window. He shoots it twice, neither shot breaking it, then sprints at it and jumps, turning his back towards the glass and cascading through it. He hits the ground outside and rolls onto the pavement, surrounded by broken glass. He stands, a cut from the glass causing him to bleed from the arm, and scrambles for his car. He jumps in and fires it up just as MTF Shy-1 and the other MTF run out the door. Get the cars? No, I heard his talk with Patra. We know where he's going. Send a few undercovers to the Aria, and get a hold of Twenty-One. We'll get him. His luck's going to run out eventually." In the distance, Murphy's car disappears over the horizon. Fade out. Fade in. Interior. Aria lobby. Midnight. The inside of the Aria hotel and casino is expensively furnished and bustling with people. It's lined with Japanese plant life and large plastic butterflies hanging down from the ceiling. The walls are covered in shiny gold and massive windows. Outside the lights of the city shine down on masses of people still moving about, bringing life to the night and illuminating a world of partying, gambling, and sin. Murphy bursts through the front door, taking great strides down the hall as he wraps his arm in gauze. He tears the end of the spool off with his teeth and tucks it into the wrapping, then shoves the rest in his pocket. Murphy pushes past a crowd of people and right up to the woman at the front desk. The crowd steps back and clears a path for him on seeing him. He's a grisly spectacle, shirt soaked in sweat and painted with blood, eyes tired and racing, and an anger on his face that takes over his whole demeanor he slams his magnum on top of the front desk, scaring the clerk behind the counter. She's meek, soft-spoken, and Murphy frightens her and just about
1: everyone around him. "'Looking for a man. Mid-thirties. Vaguely European. Checked in recently. Uh, I'm sorry,
0: sir. That's half our clientele. Shit.' Murphy pulls the gun off the counter and slams the countertop in anger. He turns and leans against the counter, eyes surveying the room while he thinks. They scan over the luxurious fittings, people in nice suits coming and going, suitcases probably filled with truly valuable things. Then he eyes the casino. It rings and dings, the sounds of greed and chance beckoning unsuspecting players over for just one more spin. He turns around sharply, an idea coming to him, has
1: anyone exceedingly lucky come by? Perhaps carrying a large bag? Again, would have checked in recently." "'Well,
0: there was one man who booked a room yesterday. He he won two jackpots in a row, then used some of the money on the booking.' "'What was
1: his name, and what room is he in?' "'I'm sorry, sir, I'm not a lip "'Room and name, lady!' Uh, Room
0: 6077, 60th floor. Name was, um, one second, please. She starts typing away at her computer frantically while Murphy peers over the counter at her. Nathan O'Balley. N. O'Balley. Nobody. What? Murphy takes off for the elevator before she can finish her sentence. He mashes an up button, and one of the six elevators around him dings, the spotless stainless steel door sliding open. Murphy steps in, then mashes the button labeled 60. The door closes, and the elevator rises. The ride up is quiet. Murphy pulls the cigarette from his mouth and takes stock of himself, blowing a puff of smoke in the air as he does so. He checks the wound on his arm then looks at himself in the reflection of the elevator door. He frowns at his own image, as if he doesn't recognize himself anymore. He puts the cigarette back in its rightful place between his lips and lowers the brim of his trilby, hiding his own eyes from themselves. He opens the cylinder of his magnum, now left with only a single bullet and the rest of the chambers filled with spent shells. He closes it and sets it back in the holster, then pulls the black cotton glove from his pocket. It dangles in front of his face as he considers
1: it. Manipulate probability. To what degree? How much has he changed with just this? All this time he's been right there, just under my nose, changing chances, making his own luck. Always lucky. Just enough to get away with it but why lead me here? Why leave even scraps of evidence? Why not eliminate any chance of me getting here? What's his endgame?"
0: The elevator dings and the door opens again. Murphy stuffs the glove back into his pocket, then steps out into the hall. He stops to read a sign on the wall pointing him towards the room, then turns and walks down the hall towards it. He passes, door after door each farther apart from the last, before finally stopping at the last one before the end of the hall. It sits slightly ajar, the lock situated to hold the door open. Murphy draws his gun and carefully pushes the door open. The room is neatly made, brightly lit, and covered in gold-painted quartz walls. It sports a lavish kitchenette with a full fridge, stove, and granite countertop. The living room has a massive, soft sofa facing a 52-inch flat screen. A football game plays on screen, showing the referee flipping a coin. The wall on the left is covered by a large fish tank planted in the wall, a number of shiny blue and red fish swimming around the water and in and out of plants. On the right is a set of doors, presumably leading to a pretty, luxurious bedroom. However at the far end of the room, outside on the concrete balcony, a set of wrapped bedsheets dangle down from something and tap against one of the windows, grabbing Murphy's attention. Murphy pushes open the doors to the balcony and turns, looking up at the roof where a series of bedsheets tied together are wrapped around a metal pole. Then Murphy sees him, standing next to the pole. He's draped in a dark brown leather overcoat and a black trilby hat. A single black cotton glove on his hand reveals his true nature, the only feature on him giving him a more than average appearance. His face is coldly unremarkable, almost like a black hole of mediocrity, trying to steal the features of everything around it and still producing nothing. He pulls a cigarette from his lips and looks down, looking intently at Murphy. He flips a small coin, an audible ring to it with each flip. The coin lands on the same side, heads every time, no matter how high it's flipped or for how long. His voice is unusually calm, almost scarily average. This is nobody, and from what Murphy now knows, he is also Passenger One. Hello, Murphy. I'm so glad to see you made it seriously. Genuinely." Murphy immediately points his gun up at him.
1: "'Give me one good reason why I shouldn't put a hunk of lead in your skull right now.'
0: "'Even better. I can give you two. One. You're a snoop, Murphy. All those questions you have—you need them answered. And I'm the only guy who can do that for you.' "'I get it. I've been a snoop most of my life. It's impossible to ignore, even if it gains you nothing, even if you know I'm guilty. You just have to know why." Murphy squints and steps back, evidently offended. Second, it wouldn't work. Probably. One in a hundred chance. Nobody raises his gloved hand and waves his fingers. I flipped a couple thousand coins just to find out. Maybe you miss, maybe it jams, maybe it's a dud, maybe it explodes in your hand, I don't know. But it probably won't work. At the very least, join me for a moment before finding out." Nobody nods towards the bedsheets. Murphy peers over at them, then reluctantly holsters his gun and grabs them. He climbs up the wall and pulls himself onto the roof, the top of which is flat and covered with gravel. Nobody reaches out his hand to help Murphy up, but he refuses to take it. He stands a few feet away from nobody, keeping a safe distance. He pulls the gun from the holster again but keeps it held at his side. I'm sorry I couldn't get us Caesar's Palace, but I think the aria is less stuffy anyway, and who can ignore the view from up here? Nobody turns to look out at the city its glowing lights shining up from the ground in a brilliant splash of colors. The world is filled in with skyscraper hotels, palaces, and pyramids, a small Eiffel Tower and a volcano in the distance. The world below sparkles like diamonds, melting the heart at the sight of such amazing human capabilities. One of my favorite places in the world to just stop and look at, Nobody turns around to see Murphy still standing at a distance. But I suppose ruminating on the achievements of man isn't your cup of tea. So go ahead, detective. Ask your questions. Snoop. Nobody sits on the ledge of the rooftop, the light of the world behind
1: him. Who are you? And what do you want? Why kill 057? Why any of this?
0: Murphy swings his arms out, gesturing to the whole of the world. Funny. All those questions are tied to the same answer. You might want to sit down. It's a long one. Murphy continues to stand in the middle of the roof, now resting his weight on one leg. Fine. You listen to me all day and you won't listen to me now. Sure. Answer the
1: damn question!
0: You ever feel like everyone in the world was made by someone except for you? Like everyone you see out there means something to something or someone, but on a deeper, visceral level, you never meant anything." Murphy looks onward, thinking back to all those years he spent sitting at his desk with no cases, no visits, no news from anyone but Fred coming in every day. Like that, yeah, but deeper, more… literal. Like you came out that way. You see, Murphy, I was a real person once. I was a somebody. But one day, something happened, and then I was nobody. Like I was suddenly unaccounted for in the grand universe's phone book. Thing is, I don't remember what it was like to be a somebody. I don't remember who I was. Maybe I was D.B. Cooper. Maybe I shot Kennedy.
1: I don't know." "'Fine. You're a depressed loner, sure. Why shoot seven? "'No, it's
0: deeper than that. You can't understand. Of course you don't. I don't know why I thought you might. Nobody does, but nobody. Nobody pulls the cigarette from his lips and blows a puff of smoke into the night sky. Maybe I introduced myself too late in the story. That would make sense. I should have put more hints in earlier. Stupid. Stupid.
1: Okay, it's deeper than that. You don't know who you are, that's fine too. Why shoot seven?
0: I'm getting there. It's a loaded question, all right? You see, when you're stuck like this, the only thing you can think about is how to go back. Back to when you were somebody. At least, that's what it's like for me. This longing to have meaning again. I'm constantly looking for new ways to regain that meaning, to break this curse. My last plot fucked up so I hopped the back of an MC&D truck just to see what it had. Lost a page of my notebook somewhere between the scuffle with the driver and the crash. Nobody opens his overcoat and pulls a small notebook out from inside, a very short pencil stuck into the binding rings. That's when I found these. Nobody puts the notebook back and holds up his gloved hand. A ledger in the truck told me what they were, what they could do. I took them, tested them. Nobody flips the coin in his hand, it lands in his gloved palm, heads facing up. Flipped this stupid coin a couple thousand times, like I said, and it worked ninety-nine out of a hundred times. So I tracked down the one place at Site-19 I hadn't seen yet, just to see if I could get in with these. The Department
1: of Pataphysics. You changed the probability of guessing the passcode to the garage and used it to enter. You're quick.
0: Funny thing is, I don't think there's supposed to be a passcode lock. But I looked at it and said, huh, what are the chances of that? That's about when I realized what I could really do.
1: Why get in the narrative jumper? What good does that do for you?
0: Nobody takes his hat off and hangs his head. Sign. That's the problem with you detective types. You just assume people have a reason for everything they do. Like I had this whole thing in mind when I jumped in, changed the chance that the lever pulled itself, saw the steam cover my eyes. No, I only hatched this when I got back. After I first saw it. Saw what? You really want to know what I saw out there? I asked, didn't I? Nobody stands again, then spreads his arms out. I saw everything. Camera zooms in on his eyes. The pupils begin to swirl, spinning and spinning and stretching out, until his eyes become whirlpools, sucking in the universe around them. They entrance and deceive and twist and turn every which way, turning and turning forevermore. I saw life, Murphy, and I saw death. I saw the power of the sun, and I saw life among the stars." I saw monsters and mages, I saw soldiers and sailors, I saw kings and I saw queens, and I saw music and I saw medicine and I saw politics and I saw art and I saw dreams and I saw nature and I saw pain and I saw relief. I saw it all, everything that makes up this world. So much of it was from the same point of view, the foundations but there were some spots from other groups where I saw their perspective. Then I saw you, and I saw me. Murphy takes another step back, putting his hand around his gun. Then I saw my line. I didn't think anybody still read things these days, but they read about me and they wrote about me. I wasn't always the same person in every written piece but we were all the same in our unique problem. One version of me was a young girl with a pink notebook. A few others were much older than me, a few of them were tailed by a man in a white suit, and a few others were tailing other people. Some of them got started in the early 1900s, others had been around for thousands of years. The one other thing we all had in common was that we were always a mystery. Then it struck me. People like mysteries. People like me. That little ounce of joy I got when I saw the like count on some of those articles, I felt just a smidge like a real person again. So I had to make a mystery. That's when I found you.
1: That's what this is all about? You killed that man? Dragged me along out here through all this? Set up all those little clues just to feel good about yourself? You set me up for that?
0: I didn't set you up. That was something they did on their own. But what a turn of events it was. What a plot twist. Added some real tension
1: to my story, it did. Amazing. How did you convince the O5 to do all this shit? Shit. Where's the girl?
0: Hang on. Those are two questions. The O5 was easy. I got lucky. Nobody waves the gloved hand again. See, you can do anything with the promise of money and a little luck. That's just how people work. When I saw 231, I saw potential to hide something in all those black lines more than just her pain. So I took it. And I hid it, and I gave it to them, and all they had to do was keep using it. They didn't ask questions. You want to know where the girl is, yeah? Maybe she's in the bedroom you didn't check. Maybe she's in the room across the hall about to scare some couple on their honeymoon. Maybe she was never real in the first place. Maybe nothing you found at August's old place actually happened. Maybe none of it was real. What? That... I know. Take a minute." Murphy stares down at the ground, trying to collect his thoughts. Above him a light breeze blows by. The stars in the night sky twinkle and shimmer, a world of magic drifting by above them, both standing alone on the roof so high above the world and its problems. The purple sky washes over them so vividly you could almost drink it. It's indescribably beautiful.
1: You still shot O-Five-Seven. I still have to take you in. Sure, you can do that. But I've already won.
0: I got what I wanted. That feeling. The feeling of personhood and meaningful existence. It's sure to come back now. Now that I've done all of this. It has to. Any minute now. No. The two look up at each other eyes
1: interlocking. That feeling, it won't come back so easy. You know that. That's not how these things work, not how anomalies work. Some get fixed, others don't. You could have changed the probability that it worked, but it hasn't yet. I think you're stuck with that one in a hundred.
0: No, it's gotta work. That's how we're alike, you and me. We both need this story to work. It's all I've got, too. Maybe that's why you wrote me this way. What are you talking about? It needs a finale. That's what it is. One last grand send-off. The antagonist's last hurrah. Put on your glove, Murphy. I want to show you something. Murphy pulls the black cotton glove from his pocket. He sets his gun back in the holster and stares at it, then looks back up at nobody. Why? You're going to chase me, and I want an even fight. Murphy looks back down at the glove, then pulls off one of his own leather gloves and slides it on. Attaboy. boy. Nobody takes a couple steps forward, then turns around runs and leaps off the roof. Murphy runs up to the edge of the roof and looks over it. Along the road, as nobody cascades towards it, a garbage truck races by, carrying old box spring mattresses in the back. Nobody falls right into the mattresses as it runs by and takes off with him in tow. Murphy looks around, then back down at the ground far below him. A number of men dressed in polo shirts of varying colors throw open the door to the room's balcony and see Murphy leaning over the edge. One of them, undercover one, shouts up to him. "'Murphy Law! You're under—' Murphy adjusts the glove, then jumps from the rooftop. He flies through the air towards the ground, diving past rows and rows of windows on the hotel he just left. Freefall.
1: All this time, just one guy trying to be whole again. A man with a finger in every pie. I've been strung along this whole time, played like a goddamn fiddle. I have to find him. I have to get him. Not just for justice, but for retribution.
0: Murphy falls into the back of an open truck filled with foam blocks, a diving board sits at its edge for jumping into the back. A kid nearby starts crying. Murphy crawls his way up to the top of the pit and finds he's just rained on some kid's birthday surprise. He jumps up and out of the truck just as a limo pulls up. Murphy? Fred. Murphy dives over the top of the limo and wrenches the passenger door open. After that
1: garbage truck.
0: Murphy points at the truck full of mattresses as it careens off the Aria property and onto the Vegas Strip. Cars on the road seem to spread out and pull over as it drives by. Nobody jumps over the truck bed and climbs around to the driver door, then forces it open and throws the driver out, taking their seat. What?
1: Drive, dammit, drive!
0: The limo driver floors it, making the engine roar as it guns out of the entryway, kicking up smoke on the birthday party. It flies out onto the strip, skidding around the turn onto the main road, then takes off behind the garbage truck. The city zips by as driver holds the gas pedal to the floor, sending the speedometer winding around like an out-of-whack clock. Murphy grabs the handle above the car door as the vehicle reaches eighty miles per hour. Through the front windshield, they can see the truck in front of them hightailing it down the road. What's going on?
1: The man in that truck set this all up. He killed the suspect and led me on a goddamn goose chase. Jesus, you've had a day then. Pull up next to the driver door. I have to get to him. It's going as fast as it can. Behind them, the
0: sounds of police sirens fill the air. Red and blue lights permeate the orange glow of the street lamps passing by. A microphone screeches, then a voice comes on over it, broadcasting from the speeding police vehicles now tailing the limousine as they race down the strip. Murphy Law! You're wanted for the murder of one John and Jane Doe! Pull the vehicle over! You're what? Murphy breaks open the passenger door and leans out the side of the limo. He looks back at the two police cars tailing them, then forward at the garbage truck. He stands from his seat and hangs out the open door. What are you doing? I have to get on that truck. Keep it steady, damn it. I'm trying. Murphy grabs onto the door as it swings and climbs around to the other side of it. The door slams shut as he holds onto the open window. Pull the vehicle over now. Murphy swings himself up under the hood of the limo as Driver watches on in amazed horror. It takes all his strength to keep from being blown over the roof by the whipping wind. The limo speeds up slightly and starts moving up next to the truck while Murphy balances on top of it. Suddenly there's a loud bang and a bullet goes straight through Murphy's trilby, taking it off his head and sending it flying into the road. Murphy turns around. A white van jumps off an exit ramp and drifts around the concrete wall, pulling behind the police cars. One man drives while another leans out the window with a rifle in his hands. On the truck's side, the orange and red logo of Sasha's Cleaning Products is stenciled on. Ah, shit! The side door of the van opens and a gunner seat slides out, a mounted gatling gun attached to the platform. Jimmy sits in the gunner seat, a sly grin spread across his face. You've been quite a lucky bastard, Mr. Law, but you made a mess. Now it's time to clean up. The limo slowly pulls closer to the truck. Murphy raises his cotton glove as Jimmy pulls back on the gunner handles. The gun rips a line of bullets into the back of the limo, breaking glassware and bottles of liquor inside. A hailstorm of bullets fly by Murphy, but each shot seems to narrowly miss him. One of the cop cars rolls down its window, and the officer inside shouts at Jimmy. I don't know who you are, but stand down! This is a police." Jimmy pulls a handgun from his hip and shoots out the back left tire of the cop car, causing it to veer left until it hits the back end of the van and spins out on the road, getting left in the dust by the other vehicles. Murphy readies himself on top of the limo as it finally pulls up next to the truck. His dark brown hair blows back in the speeding wind. He quickly leaps off the limousine's roof and grabs hold of a handle on the back of the truck, dangling off the side. His legs can't find footing, and they get blown backwards by the speed. He hangs onto the handle, his life depending on it. The van behind them rips another hail of bullets into the truck's back. Murphy closes his eyes for a moment, thinking of the cotton glove. Come on, get lucky, get lucky. A bullet from the gatling gun takes out the chain holding up the back door of the truck bed, and it drops open, skidding along the ground and sending sparks flying. Murphy pushes his feet off the side of the truck and swings back around the side, letting go of the handle and falling into the bed. He pushes the stack of mattresses out of the bed and onto the road, sending them careening back into the van. A mattress gets caught on the windshield, and the van swerves left and right to try to get it off, hitting the other police car in the process. The car's brakes screech and it comes to a halt, the van blowing by it. The mattress finally shakes off the side, flying back and directly into the gunner seat. The side of the mattress hits Jimmy squarely in the face, and he falls off the seat and tumbles onto the road. Murphy climbs up and over the back of the truck, steadying himself on the roof. He kicks at the windshield with his boots, denting and cracking them with each kick. Behind the windshield, a smile spreads across nobody's face as he looks up at Murphy. Now this is what my story needed. One final fight the ultimate climactic conclusion. Good versus evil. Protag v. Antag. What is wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? I told you we're one in the same here, Murphy. We're both just searching for our purpose, longing to mean something. I just went and did it myself. The van's gunner seat slides back into the van and the side door closes. The man in the passenger seat leans back out the window with a rifle and fires at the truck. A couple rounds slam into the truck's open backing. Murphy continues ineffectually kicking the windshield. Look at you, going at it. You're different now, Murphy. You're a changed man. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Five was right. You're new. You're different. I've changed you forever. You're no noir mystery—you're an action thriller now! I made you that way!" The rifleman in the van shoots one of the truck's back right tires. The truck starts slowing down and sliding right. Nobody pushes the gear shift into neutral and throws open the driver door. The limo still rides next to it, a terrified driver still holding the pedal down. Nobody dives from the driver door and onto the roof of the limo, landing on his stomach. The truck slows and the limo pulls forward. Murphy looks back at the van chasing after him as the truck slows, then looks over at the limousine. He jumps from the truck and lands on the back of the limo, just barely keeping his balance. The van's remaining two passengers' smiles fade as the truck slows, realizing that they're still directly behind it. The van slams into the truck, the force of the speed crunching it like a stomped-on soda can. Murphy kicks the side of the limo. Stop the car, Fred. We got him. The limo's brakes scream and the tire rubber burns off onto the asphalt below. The car lurches forward as it finally comes to a full stop on the highway, sending Murphy and nobody tumbling over the front. They roll onto the road, both of them rolling perfectly and rising to their feet uneasily. What a thrill. I almost wish it didn't have to end. What Murphy runs up to nobody and slams his clenched fist into the side of his face, sending nobody back down to the ground. Murphy plants his foot on nobody's chest and stares down at him with a piercing, icy gaze. Murphy draws his gun from the holster and aims it squarely at the center of nobody's chest. What are you going to do? Kill me? I've already won. I got what I wanted. I spent ten months putting this together, setting up all the pieces. You think I don't have contingencies?" Nobody raises his gloved hand, pointing at Murphy's chest. "'You can't stop what's coming.' Murphy grips the hand and rips the glove off, then pulls back the trigger. "'Oh.' There's the crack of a gunshot. Nobody drops his hand to his side looking at his now bleeding chest in amazement and shock. You... This isn't the end. You haven't stopped nobody. Somewhere out there. Somewhere. Nobody coughs, spitting blood onto his overcoat. He struggles to speak, speech slowly becoming gargled. Another metaphysical nobody will find me. (coughs) Find us. They'll feel that twinge of meaning again. Heaven stop nobody.
1: Who do you even think... even think you... you are? Me? I know who I am. I'm Murphy Law.
0: A wide smile spreads across nobody's face.
1: I'm the guy you call when everything that could go wrong did."
0: Nobody lets out a final chuckle, the laugh laced with crimson chokes.
1: its perfect.
0: The end. Nobody's head finally falls back onto the pavement. The coin drops from his hand and onto the asphalt, tails side up. Murphy steps off his chest and collapses onto the road, extraordinarily tired. He stares up at the twinkling stars of the night sky, admiring each little one as it shines down on him. Camera zooms out to show Murphy and nobody laying next to each other, as if watching the stars together. The limo pulls up next to Murphy. It's battered and bullet-riddled to an almost comedic level. Driver rolls down a partially broken window. "'Hey, champ. Need a lift?' Murphy stands back up and takes a deep breath. He takes one last look at the body before turning and climbing back into the limo's passenger side.
1: Thanks, Fred. It's been a long day. Get me the hell out of here.
0: The limo slowly pulls away from the body, chugging off over the horizon. Fade to black. Back in the real world, Director O'Leary calls up Robinson and says that he sent off those weird addendums to Infohazards. To make a long story short, none of them should have seen those, and both he and Robinson are getting scheduled for amnestics in a couple of days. The amnestics department is getting a lot of people in, actually. After a few moments of silence, O'Leary says that it's probably okay for them to read those addendums now, since they're getting wiped anyways. Robinson says he can feel free, but for him, he's not going to look. O'Leary tells him that the O5s have an extra note that they'd like him to add to 7043, and then he can send over the final version. The final version of scp 7043 lists its description as a collection of 246 black gloves, each made primarily of cotton. The gloves possess no notable physical features, save for a single tag on the inside of each, which is stamped with the logo of Marshall, Carter, and Dark. They can be worn by most persons regardless of hand size, as the material will stretch to accommodate most hand sizes. When one of the gloves is worn by a person, the person will gain the ability to manipulate the probability of any event occurring. These range from simple probability tests, such as the flip of a coin or the roll of a die, to larger, more complex events one might not otherwise consider to be dictated by chance. The probability manipulated in this way can never be 100% guaranteed, as it's believed that the use of an instance in this manner would grant the user the ability to affect the fabric of space and time in a manner akin to that of a level 1 reality bender. No actual testing has been performed on the gloves so far, as this information is based purely on documentation recovered from MCD. All of the gloves were recovered from the crash site of a MCD shipping truck, which veered off the main road and crashed into a tree 30 miles south of Wetumpka, Alabama on September 7, 2021. The reason for the collision is unknown, as no prior issues with the vehicle could be discerned on inspection. The driver of the vehicle was found deceased at the crash site with some bruises and abrasions suggesting a struggle with an attacker. No other persons were found, although one document of note was recovered, believed to have been left by the attacker. The note, dated September 7, 2021, mentions that they discovered the route of an MCND truck and they've scrapped their previous idea. The concept fell through, and the subject refused to cooperate. To say that the previous attempt was a failure is an understatement. They're going to jump the truck and investigate the shipment, and they have a good feeling about it. This could be their golden ticket. This is too hopeful maybe, but hope is all there is to have anymore. They have to break this curse, and they will, eventually the note is signed, nobody. We're then given a notice from the o5 council stating that on july 6th, o5-5, 6, and 7 were all attacked, unprovoked, by scp 3143, murphy law, while utilizing an instance of scp 7043. Murphy managed to successfully terminate each of them using SCP-7043's capabilities and is considered hostile, needing to be captured at all costs. This is to be considered a high-level priority by all MTF units, and an investigation regarding methods of capture and containment is to be opened by the site-19 investigative department ASAP. They wish the 305 members good fortune in the afterlife and hope that Murphy Law is brought to justice and containment swiftly and mercilessly. Finally we're given another phone transcript between O'Leary and Robinson. They seem to be using burner phones, although Robinson is confused about what exactly is going on. O'Leary is clearly worried about the foundation tracking him, and asks Robinson if he read the latest update to SCP-7043. Robinson did, as he had to add it to the document, but he's pretty shaken up by all this, with the secrecy they're doing not helping. O'Leary says that he read through all of the addendums that Robinson had said just appeared out of nowhere, and none of what the O5s say happened is true. Murphy Law didn't kill any of the O5s, it was their writer, and nobody. O'Leary is interrupted by his door being broken in. And his line goes silent. Robinson only takes this to be a crappy prank and hangs up. With that, the Montauk Falcon comes to a conclusion. Murphy Law managed to make it out relatively unscathed, although he's now got the entire Foundation chasing after him. What began as a straightforward murder investigation spiraled into a complex web of deceit and mystery all orchestrated by nobody after he jumped up a narrative lair and saw the scp wiki, and how much people liked reading about him, as well as mysteries. Murphy Law, being a pataphysical construct himself, has his advantages and disadvantages in situations like this, but his capabilities in bending the narrative around him seem to be weakening. Not only was he operating in the real world instead of transforming it into a noir film, he also slipped out of existence for a bit as the writer took over. This surely isn't the last we'll see of Murphy Law, though, because as long as he's got his gun, his fists, and his grit, trouble will keep calling his name.